open your Bibles with me, we're moving along in the book of Genesis. We're at Genesis chapter 28. Seeing what's under this thing. Oh. Now, I want you to take a look at this old ratty chair. You wonder where a thing like this came from. I mean, did this come from the curb somewhere? Someone's garage? Maybe it sat up in the corner of someone's attic and collected, uh, collected dust over the years. It's kind of pathetic. It's got a bracket that's broken that cane weave on the chair. I mean, it's not even Thanksgiving yet, and I don't think the thing would hold me at this point. <laughs> the finish is thin. In fact, there's places where uh, the finish is worn off completely. I wonder what good this chair is. Maybe it's better off just being placed at the side of the curb. It's funny, when I was a boy, my dad, he would slowly drive the streets of Buffalo, New York, and he would occasionally stop the car as he was looking around and say, boys, get out of the car, I found a gem. And we would herd out of the car and we would grab these ugly pieces of junk and shove it into his ugly Volkswagen and off we would go. People would give us these sideways glances and they're probably thinking, what in the world are they going to do with that? Well, when people would come to our house, dad loved to show off his little treasures that he had found, a chair here, a coffee table there, an armoire. And he would say something along the lines of, can you believe someone threw this away? I mean, I found it at the corner of Willow Breeze Road and Bayard Avenue. What were they thinking to throw away a gem like that? When I look at that chair, it kind of makes me think about our lives. I remember growing up as a young boy and the whole world's ahead of you. You, you really look forward and say, I'm going to conquer the world, or at least you just didn't realize that life was going to take the twists and turns that it did. I didn't realize that I was going to make a lot of the sinful choices that I made. Choices come, choices go. And as you make those choices, you pick up a ding here, the finish starts to fade, and before long you look at your life and then you look at the God of the universe and you ask the question, well, what, what would God want with someone like me? You start to feel like that broken old chair set aside, forgotten. Now maybe you've never come out and said that to yourself, but the question in your heart still arose because God feels so distant to you. You suspect he looks at you the same way many people look at the broken chair. Well, I have a question for you this morning. Does God look at us like the people who set the furniture to the curb? who no longer found it valuable, no longer wanted it in their life, or does God look at us differently? Does he, like my dad, drive around the neighborhood slowly looking for Jim, saying, I've got plans for that? I think we'll find the answer to that question this morning in Genesis chapter 28. So if you would, if you're there with me, we're going to pick up and start reading at verse 10. The text reads like this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to 
a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now let's think about the story that has happened so far. If you haven't been with us, Jacob came out of a dysfunctional family and he engaged in the dysfunction by deceiving his blind father and stealing his brother's birthright. His brother has become enraged and Jacob's scheming mother decides that she's going to send her son off to Haran. It's been two days since he's been sent. Two days is a long time to think. He's covered now some 70 miles. He has another 480 miles to go. He probably only has the clothes on his back. He doesn't have someone in the world to call a friend. It seems like he's even leery of people because as we learn in this text, Jacob is just outside of the Canaanite city Luz, but he decides to go to this barren, desolate wasteland, sleep under the stars, and be left to his own thoughts. Jacob? Doesn't sound like those plans worked out so well for you, Jacob, you the trickster, the schemer, the master manipulator. You're all alone in the dark. Jacob, you traded the comfort of your tent for a rock, a cold, hard rock. Jacob, you're running from Beersheba where Esau waits to kill you, heading off to Haran where Laban wants to exploit you. You left the death camp and you're headed for the hard labor camp. Jacob, it doesn't sound like those plans worked out at all. And if you were to ask him all of those questions, Jacob would probably honestly say, I've blown it. There's no coming back from here. You see, this certain place that Jacob finds himself in, as we're looking at the text, is a place where maybe you have been, it's a place that I've been, it's a place called Rock Bottom. Rock Bottom is that place where you look back over the decisions you've made in the wake of bad decisions, the broken relationships, the people you've hurt, the blown opportunities, you feel broken and disappointed and ashamed of yourself. You feel insignificant, and there's only really one person that you have to blame. And it's not mom and dad. It's you. And then you look off into the next direction, the future, and you say to yourself, well, I don't really have any hopes of prospects because I'm sitting here right now. How am I ever going to get there? You see, rock bottom is a very hard place to be, but it's also a good place because God says at this place of rock bottom, now you're ready for me to start doing the real work in your life. Whether we want to admit it or not, there is a lot of Jacob in all of us, and Jacob, like this chair, needs some refinishing work before God can make him into the person that God wants him to be. I remember how dad would take these chairs and he would um, strip them down of all of this old finish. He began by using a stripping agent that you would cover the chair with. It was a harsh agent. It was noxious. It would sit upon the chair, set in, and start to pull that old finish out. And then he'd take a heat gun with a hard scraper and get into all the nooks and crannies because dad knew that if this chair was to look the way that he envisioned it to look, all of the old would have to go. All of the old. 
if he was going to replace it with new. It's interesting when the Bible talks about the transformation in a person's life. In the book of Colossians, Paul refers to the, the old finish that clings to the human heart. He calls it the old sinful nature. And that old finish, it comes with us, it's set in deep in our life, and it affects every aspect of our life. It affects our sexual life. The Bible says that we make decisions out of God's moral sexual boundaries. It affects the way we worship. We love and we value things more than we love and value God. It affects our relational life. We, uh, towards other people, do things that are of anger and malice and rage and frustration and deceits. And Paul says, in the book of Colossians, all of that has to go. It has to be gone. Because God can't work with those types of things. So God has to strip us down. The goal is to remove every bit of the old and replace it with Christ. The problem is, though, unlike this chair, human hearts have legs that can run. I mean, can you imagine trying to refinish this thing and it's running away from you? Well, God's dealing with that dynamic all the time. But here's the thing with God. God's not interested in chasing people. He will search. He will rescue. He will seek. But he's never going to chain down a human heart and cause a human heart to do what the human heart doesn't want to do. And so here... In the story of Jacob, God allows Jacob to do what he wanted to do. He deceives his father. God doesn't intervene. He doesn't step in and say, don't do that. And what happens, the natural consequences take Jacob to that certain place, that place called rock bottom, so that Jacob is so low that now he's ready to look up and meet God. Now look at the story as we continue. Verse 12, it says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it all, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. Let me ask you a question. Why does God need to introduce himself to Jacob. I mean, didn't Jacob essentially grow up in a Christian home? Didn't his mom and dad talk to him about God? Didn't he have that firsthand knowledge because Abraham knew God, Isaac knew God, he was raised to know God, was taught about God. He might have even believed propositional truths about God. But I got to tell you, for some reason, he really didn't know God at least not in a personal way. He viewed God as grandpa's God, as dad's God. And you know, the biggest problem in Jacob's life is not that he didn't know things about God or have a uh, conviction in his heart that he believed that God exists. No. Jacob was a cheater because he thought God was far away from him. Distant. Removed. Unconcerned with how he lived. Un involved. I mean, haven't we all felt that way at some point? Yeah, I believe that God loves me. I believe God has a plan for my life. The Bible talks about those things, but there's billions of people in the world. 
God can't keep all of his focus and energy on me. He has other things to worry about. And then that faulty kind of thinking then leads to all kinds of faulty conclusions. If God's not personal, he's not concerned about your life, and you're pretty much then just living life on your own. Yeah, we got the book, and there's some rules in here, and there's a couple of Ten Commandments or so, and as long as you kind of check those boxes along the way, you'll be okay. And, you know, no one's going to perfectly check the boxes, so essentially you can bend the rules from time to time, and nobody's going to take care of you but you. That's just the way life is, and that's just the way Jacob was living his life for all of these years. He cheated because he either believed that God didn't notice, didn't care, or was too busy to help him out. He took matters into his own hands. But now, the reality of God, the presence of God has burst into his world. As he dreams, he first notices this ladder, or we could probably translate it staircase, and it's a touch point between heaven and earth, the angels ascending the ladder and asc- ascending and descending the ladder. And as he looks at this heavenly connection point with the angelic beings of God ministering back and forth between heaven and earth, what stands above it all is the Lord himself because God is in control. He is in charge of what takes place between the two. It's interesting as you look at the ESV translation, you get this idea that the the staircase is coming from earth and it's reaching up to heaven. But actually, the Hebrew reads literally that the stairway was placed toward the earth. The idea here is that the communication between heaven and earth is established by God. You might recall in Genesis chapter 11 that they got that reverse, didn't they? They tried to build a tower, a ziggurat, which was a temple with stairs lining around it so that they might build their way up to God and be contemporaries with God. Didn't work out so well for them, did it? You see, communication happens this way, not that way. We do not climb our way up to God. We do not find God by searching the inner recesses of our heart or laying out all of the religious texts and and pulling out bits and pieces that resonate with us. No, if we're going to have a conversation with God, it must first and foremost be initiated by God. The word revelation is derived from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means disclosure or unveiling. Paul ends in his wonderful systematic theology shares, revelation signifies God unveiling himself to mankind. The fact that revelation has occurred renders theology possible. Had God not revealed himself, there could be no accurate or propositional statements about God. So what does that mean for us? Well, most importantly, it means that if you want to know God, do you really want to know God? If you do, you can only know God through the means that God has revealed to us. There's two types of revelation. There's general revelation, special revelation. I want you, if you're taking notes this morning, to write down the word special revelation. That one's very important. In Hebrews chapter 1 The writer says this, and he tells us about special revelation. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. 
And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Two forms of special revelation. The first is the scriptures. You see, when the New Testament writers speak of the prophets, they're talking about the prophetic writings. That's what they're thinking of. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, the apostle says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Notice prophecy of scripture. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know God, you have to know God's word. The second form of special revelation is the Son of God. We learn this in the Gospels that Jesus of Nazareth, who we're going to celebrate the birth of in just a month at Christmas time, he is the Son of God. He is the ultimate communication of God. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side, he has made him known. Wow. Jesus is the ultimate communication of God. It's interesting, uh, later on in that chapter, Jesus has a conversation with a doubter. I love how in the Bible we see all kinds of different doubters in the Gospels. You know, doubters can come to a place of faith. Doubters come to a place of faith when they meet the real Jesus and see his real priorities. Well, this doubter is Nathaniel. He's the brother of Philip. Philip has come to know Jesus. He's become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he runs to go tell his brother Nathaniel, who's never met Jesus before. We have found him, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the long-awaited one. Nathaniel looks back at him, and he's a little cynical, and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come on, Jesus. I mean, this guy, or Philip, this guy's a hillbilly. And then he Thing good come from that? Well, Philip does the right thing that a disciple's supposed to do. He says, come and see. Don't just take my word for it. Why don't you go meet the real Jesus? If you ever want to bring a doubter into a place of belief, don't just tell them what you think. Take them to the real Jesus. Let them interact with him. And so Nathanael comes and Jesus makes these prophetic words. He says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's struck by this and he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Now listen to Jesus' response to that. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Did you catch that? That's Jacob's dream. Only now Jesus is saying that this access connection between heaven and earth, between man and between God is through him. He is the access to heaven. That is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the staircase. Jesus is the singular access or way to God. So I have a question for you. Have you met God yet? Maybe you're like Jacob before he left the tents where God feels distant to you. 
You've never had a real encounter with God. Or maybe you're like Jacob as you've just arrived at that certain place and you've hit rock bottom and you're looking up and you're just wondering if God has anything for you. How does he view me? What does he think of me? Well, I gotta tell you, God has taken you through those moments so you could hear what I'm about to say to you right now. If you wanna have a relationship with God, you must come to God on God's terms. And that means going through Jesus. Trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, believing that God raised him from the dead, knowing that Jesus has the power to save you because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son, which means he has the power to do what he said. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your good works. Don't trust in the fact that you were baptized at some point or that your grandmother had a good prayer life. Don't trust in the worldview that you've established for yourself. The Bible says that the only way we can have access to God is through Christ alone. And I'll tell you, when you meet God, you will find that God is much different than you first thought. You see, if Jacob thought God was a distant God, He couldn't have been further from the truth because God is near. Listen to God's own words in verses 13 through 15. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and north and south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't unroll a list of all the faults of Jacob. He doesn't say, look at what you did to your dad. Can you believe that you did that to your brother? You haven't even been following me one bit. How dare you? No. God meets Jacob with grace. Grace is God's disposition to do good to the undeserving, and Jacob is undeserving. Jacob is not an otherwise good egg that's just made a couple of bad mistakes here and there. No, Jacob, if left to his own devices, will become an even more rotten cheater. But now... God interrupts his life with grace. And he commits to do good to him. As he did to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give you this land. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. I wonder if Jacob needed to hear these words. I wonder if the promises of God met Jacob in the place of his need. As you look at it, it seems that it does. He's dealing with shame. God says to him, I am the God of your father Abraham. Jacob, even though you feel like you've blown it and you have, 
I can take away the embarrassment from your life. I can use you. I've already done this in the life of another. Betrayal, I am the God of Isaac. I know you portrayed your own dad, but I'm also your dad's God. I will not fail him. Loss of his homeland, I will give you this land. It's not over, Jacob. I know that you're running away, but I'm gonna bring you back. Loss of his family, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will not truly be alone because I am with you and I will bring up offspring for you. Insignificance, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, Jacob, even though you feel like a speck of dust right now. I can work through you. I can accomplish the impossible through you. Fear of the future, I'm with you wherever you go. You're heading for hard times, but guess what? Not only do I go with you, but I'm there before you. Fear of failure, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised to do because God is faithful even when you are unfaithful. The results don't rest in your hands. They rest in God's hands. Friends, this is God's grace. God meets us in that place of rock bottom, he reveals himself and he promises to meet us in our deepest place if we will turn to him by faith. And in this moment, we're met with God's grace. And friends, God's grace is transformative. You see, when you have an encounter with the living God, it is always a transformative encounter. Jacob meets God and he leaves the place changed. You cannot have a real encounter with God and not leave the place changed. Look at the ways that Jacob has changed in the text. First, we see that his fears changed. Verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Verse 17, he was afraid. You see, after truly meeting God, Jacob's sense of what to be afraid of drastically changed. You know we're afraid of all the wrong things, don't you? We fear all the wrong things. We spend our time, our energy, our resources because we're afraid of the wrong things. What are you afraid of? I don't know what you're afraid of, but I know what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of making bad decisions that I can't pull back out from. I'm afraid that people will reject me. I'm afraid that at some point I will fail. I'm just being honest with you. Those things scare me. What are you afraid of? Jacob was afraid of being the second-class brother. And so in that fear, he tried to take matters into his own hands. He steals Esau's blessing. Now he is afraid of his brother Esau, the hairy oaf who's going to kill him. But here's what happens. Your fears change when a greater force invades your world. Did you get that? Your fears change when a greater force invades your world. Imagine this with me. You're walking out in a dark jungle path all by yourself. You have only a flashlight. And as you make your way along this path, 
First of all, the hair on your neck starts to rise because as you move the flashlight around, you see the shadows lurking and you hear the sounds of distant animals howling off behind you. But suddenly, the the darkness and the sound shifts in your mind to a lower place of fear because you throw up your flashlight and 10 yards down, you see a snake in the path and it is a poisonous snake. Now the force before you is much stronger than the darkness around you. But imagine how quickly the fear of the snake would evaporate if you felt the hot breath and heard the ear-piercing roar of a lion behind you. That would be the greater force. Its presence in your life would be indomitable. You see, for Jacob, when he met God, he also had a fear adjustment. He didn't need to fear being the second-class brother or uh, the wrath of his brother. No, he needed to fear the God of the universe. And Jesus said to his own disciples, you guys, we need to have a fear adjustment. He said to them in Matthew 20, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy soul and body in hell. You hear what I'm saying here? God is the lion. Ultimately, God is the only one that we truly need to be afraid of. So what matters is what are God's intentions? You see, if the lion behind you roars, but its intentions is to do good in your life, then you're not going to be afraid. If God's intention in your life is to lavish his love upon you, then what is there to fear? Ultimately, one day, we will be standing in front of the lion when you and I die, and all that will matter is what are his intentions. 1 John 4 16 to 18. So we have come to know and to believe that the, that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out Fear. Do you know the love of God through his son, Jesus? If you do, then you have nothing to fear. The greater force God has determined to place his love upon you, not his wrath. Friends, if God is for us, then who can be against us? You see, his fears change, but also his love changes. He encounters the living God and it produces within him a reverential worship. Look at verses 18 and 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. So here at Bethel, now this certain place has a name because a place is just a place until God shows up. But when God comes, then it becomes a place of remembrance, doesn't it? And I think this name shift also signifies for us a shift in the heart of the man, Jacob. You see, in the Bible, real worship comes from hearts that love God. 
we all love something. There's something that is attractive to your heart that you value, that you pursue. We pursue what we perceive will please us. Something or someone receives the honor, the adulation that your heart should be reserving only for God. The Bible says you could sum up the entirety of God's law with one. Love God with your entire self. You do that and the rest of your life will work out because your desires will be conformed with God's desires. That's why Abraham's able to obey the law before he had the law. Abraham loved God. And so he naturally did what pleases to God. This is why the Osterville Baptist Church mission begins with worship. Worship, transformation, mission. You see, you cannot make it to transformation if you do not love God. It begins there. You cannot make it to mission if you do not love God because you cannot do things for God or pass along the love of God if, if it's not real and genuine to you first. It always begins with worship. And the funny thing is, is that you could be so close to the center of that vision and a mile away from it. You could be going to all the Bible studies, attending church, giving your money, but if your heart is not beating for God, then you are Jacob before this encounter, not Jacob after this encounter. So his fears changed, his love changed. Now look at his priorities. His new priority system, the language in verses 20 through 22 is a little confusing in the translation. It almost reads like an if-then proposition. If you do good things for me, God, then I will bless you with my church attendance, with my service, with my giving. God is not an if-then God. He's not interested in swapping goods with you. No, the vow probably more accurately reads this way. If the Lord God is with me and keeps me in this way in which I am going and gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I return in peace to the house of my Father and the Lord becomes my God, then this stone which I set up as a pillar will be the house of God and all which you give me a tenth I will give you. So it's not an if-then proposition with God. He is acknowledging to God that I need you in order for these things to happen. He needs God's help. If he's going to keep the commitment that he makes with God, God would have to empower the commitment. It's an affirmation of faith. He's promising his life, his worship, his possessions. This is a 180-degree shift in priorities here. If you're ever asking yourself the question and you're doing a gut check, do, uh, is my heart sold out for God? Do I really love God? The place to begin is your priority system, your money, your time. The, the, the thing that gets you up when that alarm clock rings at 6.30 in the morning, you say, I'm going to find myself there. That's your priority system. And if your priority system is misaligned without God being at the center, that's a problem. It's fitting that the schemer who is offering his entire life to God begins by changing his priorities with his wallet, isn't it? 
It reminds me of the words of Jesus. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When God's presence invades your life, you no longer find your security in stuff. It's just a tool. It's just stuff. God owns it all. And if God owns it all, then I can generously give to the work of God and trust that God will take care of my needs. I thought that Billy Graham Fletcher did an awesome job last Sunday. Um, Yes, I did ask him to preach on giving. I asked him to change his sermon plan, and I asked him to do it for two reasons. The first is I think it's a message that we need to hear regularly. Uh, This is one of those priority systems that we get misaligned on. The Bible talks about giving almost more than anything else it talks about. It talks about money. It talks about your priorities. It's that one tension point in life where, I don't know about you, but when my money gets out of whack, I feel out of whack immediately. Well, Harry presented some absolutely wonderful principles. God owns it all. God doesn't need anything from you, but he wants you to participate in what he's doing. It's not an if-then proposition with God. It's not that health and wealth theology. If you do this, then God will bless you. And the New Testament doesn't specifically say the word tithe, but it intensifies the principle. God's not saying give me 10% and then you're done. God's saying I want a people who are generous and passionate about my mission. I'll tell you, the other reason I asked Harry to preach that message, and uh, he kicked me in the shin in between the services for saying this, is because he and Muriel are two of the most generous Christians I've ever met in my life. They've been generous to me. They've been generous to this church. They've been generous to just about any Christian that crosses paths with them. So if you go back and listen to that sermon from last week, go onto the app or go onto the website, you are going to hear a man preaching from the heart the the truth of the word of God who believes the word of God and lives the word of God. I could tell you so many stories about how Harry has done this, but I'm not going to because I don't want to take away the privilege of his secret gifts to the Lord. That's for him and the Lord. You see, Harry has a loose grip on money because money has a loose grip on him. And that's what I want for you. And that's what I want for me. I want us to be a generous people on mission for God. Now, I began with this question. I asked you, when God looks at your life, does he view us kind of like the people who took this piece of furniture and just set it off to the side? No longer useful to them. No longer valuable. Get it out of my sight. Or is God, like my dad, slowly driving around the neighborhood, eyeing for that ideal peace, stopping the car and saying, what a gem, I've got plans for you. I think as we looked at the story of Jacob this morning, we saw that God is searching for us. Not because of what we presently are, but because of what we can become when God transforms us. 
And friends, it all begins with meeting with God. It begins with placing your faith, your confidence, your trust in Jesus. And when you do that, then God begins that transformative work in the heart. He changes your fears. He changes what you love. He changes your priorities. And after the heart goes through that renovation process, when we stand before Jesus, at the end of time, the Holy Spirit has renovated the heart then we stand before God and we truly are what we could be and should be. Beautifully complete. Beautifully finished. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?